Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're Solution Architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hello, my name is Shane Baldacino, and this is episode 67 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And joining myself today, back in Australia, is once again, Dr. Peter Stansky. Welcome, Pete. Opposite sides of the world, we're back home again. It's nice to be back home indeed. Uh, so we're coming to you recorded, not quite live, um, out of sunny Melbourne, as opposed to minus uh, temperatures that we had in Chicago in the last episode. Absolutely. It's a, a bit of a change. I have to say, I miss the cold temperature. There have been some scorching hot days since I've come back from Chicago. Yes, indeed. And it uh, hasn't been great for uh, some of us because uh, I've picked up a little passenger uh, on the flight home, uh, which has been giving me a bit of a cough. Um, so uh, I don't think it's anything serious that I should be worried about. And I uh, certainly don't think the uh, World Health Organization will be chasing me down to lock me down anywhere. Let's hope not and probably best not travel <laughs> at the moment. Yeah, minimize that. Anyway, on with the show because uh, it is 2020, Shane, and uh, I'm super pumped to be doing more and more episodes with you this year. Yeah, look, it's 2020, we're back with a backlog of interesting topics, you know, now in Australia in the midst of summer and it's hot. And Pete, you know, I have to ask, have you ever had anything fail? Now, lots of things have failed in my life, uh, but uh, are we talking software, hardware, devices perhaps? Look, I'm going to say both, but devices that I have, and I'm sure everyone has, typically don't like the heat. You know, I've had a fridge fail during the midst of summer. And of course, random electronics, actually more than random electronics. I had a UART driver on my PLC fail when things got hot. And that was a real pain in the backside. You know, the result was my serial stream of data from my alarm system failing randomly, meaning so many things in my house, which are based on sensor movement, just wouldn't turn on. PowerPoints wouldn't turn on, doors wouldn't open and so on. And this got me thinking, Pete, how do you cope with failure? Well, it's a great question because, um, you know, if you ask Werner, he talks about everything fails all the time, right? Um, and you've got also failures when it comes to cold. I mean, batteries don't work so well uh, when they're exposed to very low temperatures. So uh, actually, heat and cold can be quite detrimental. Um, but if we talk about uh, software and hardware, uh, there's, uh, you know, quite a number of different ways of doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Just got me thinking then, you know, with cold and batteries, yes, a lot of them are insulated these days in modern cars to deal with that. But we digress because this is Tech Chat. <laughs> it is. So today, listeners, you asked for it in this themed episode of AWS Tech Chat. We're going to explore how one deals with failure and cover a raft of topics such as architecting for HA, you know, multi-region topologies, BCP, DR patterns, and more. How does that sound, Pete? Sounds pretty cool, but uh, there's a lot of acronyms in, the, in this acronym soup, uh, which we'll get to shortly. But uh, I think it's a really timely episode because, uh, uh, you know, if everything fails all the time, um, I'm sure every one of our listeners has experienced some kind of a service disruption, failure of system or software. Um, so this is very topical. Yeah, look, everyone has a war story to tell. So before we get into this exciting episode, and look, this topic is exciting. How about some news, Pete? Indeed. Yes. So... Um, 
We'll park uh, the DR piece for, for now, but uh, I'm super excited because uh, they're related to our themed episode. We talked about EKS, uh, so which is the Amazon Elastic Kubernetes Service. Now, in case you are either new to AWS or perhaps been living under a rock, uh, EKS is our managed Kubernetes service that makes it super easy for you to run Kubernetes on AWS without needing to install, you know, operate or maintain your own uh, control plane uh, or even worker nodes. To say EKS is popular is a bit of an understatement. I wouldn't be surprised if EKS either becomes our most popular service or is, you know, is up there with our most popular services. There is even an online workshop you can do at HTTPS EKSworkshop.com, which, you know, its intent is to educate users about the features of EKS, Kubernetes, Docker. So if you're interested in EKS, Kubernetes and Docker as a whole, this is a great place to start. So Pete, I don't want to steal your thunder here, but how much cheaper is EKS? It's a lot cheaper, right? Um, so not just a little bit cheaper, but 50% cheaper. So that's half price, Shane. Now, now this doesn't affect just new instances, but all EKS customers uh, automatically will benefit from this new lower price, which is uh, effective as of January 21st. So the new pricing applies to all AWS regions where Amazon EKS is available. And now the other cool thing is the second announcement around price reduction is around the cloud endure disaster recovery. And for those who are not familiar with Cloud and Geo Disaster Recovery, it's an automated IT resilience solution um, that lets you recover your environment from really all sorts of unexpected infrastructure and application outages, beta corruptions, even ransomware in some cases, or even uh, malicious attacks. Now, what it does is it utilizes block-level continuous data replication, which ensures that uh, your target machines are spun up in the most up-to-date state during a disaster or a drill, perhaps a fire drill, if you're doing uh, drills for DR. Uh, so your organization can achieve sub-second RPOs, Shane. Ooh, RPOs. We will get to what that actually means for those who aren't familiar soon. But look, what I like about Cloud Endure, and this is not an advertisement for them, but it provides a solution to something that none of our AWS services provide, and that is continuous block-level replication. So this takes place in a low-cost staging area to reduce the compute and storage footprint to a minimum. In the event of a disaster, Cloud Endure is going to trigger a highly automated machine conversion process and then scale and spin everything up in the target AWS region. Now, this is a good solution if you have those legacy, you know, mode zero applications that run on EC2 or even on premises and aren't programmatically defined in your source control platform, such as, you know, infrastructure as Cloud in a declarative syntax language, such as CloudFormation. Did you say infrastructure as Cloud? That's a new one. I think I did. Infrastructure <laughs> as code. There we go. I do like infrastructure as code. We should, we should, we should so trademark that. <laughs> I'd cut that out, Pete, but I think I'm just going to leave this in the show. I think it'd be fun. All right. Or even CDK, so the new cloud development kit. It is a marketplace offering and the price has dropped 80% to $0.28 cents per hour, which over the course of a month is approximately $20 US, give or take, depending on how many days in a given month. So if you have a need for block-level replication, consider this offering. It's pretty cool. And look, for those of you who are, who are keeping score, uh, as of January 23rd, we've reduced prices 80 times since AWS launched in 2006, Shane. So uh, we keep lowering the price and making things uh, you know, more affordable. And in fact, uh, look, while we, while we have no new regions to announce, um, you know, our footprint is still 22 regions, 69 availability zones with one local zone. Uh, and five new regions in the works. Now, and also our CloudFront content delivery network has 216 edge locations, uh, which really ensures that, you know, you're able to get faster to your customers. Summits are about to start. So we'll rehash the same information as the last episode quickly. But if you do have a local summit in your region, 
and are interested in attending, you can search AWS Summits in your favorite search engine. That's right. So uh, we have uh, uh, Mexico City in Mexico on the um, 4th of March. We have uh, France and Paris, so 17th of the 3rd. And Dubai, United Emirates on the 24th of the 3rd. And don't forget, uh, Sydney Summit is, I think, just under 10 weeks away from us, which is also happening in uh, in late March. We could talk more about these events, but on with the show. And before we get into this, I want to say thank you for those who provide feedback on these deep dive sessions. It's always refreshing to hear that, you know, we're on the right track here. And it was great to hear some feedback from a listener the other day in person. So, look, thank you very much. And by the way, as you guys know, we... You know, uh, define a roadmap for our services uh, from customer feedback. So this show is no different, right? Exactly. All right, Pete, on with the show. So DR, BCP, RTO, RPOs, MTBF, MTRR. You know, Pete, there are a lot of acronyms out there in IT. <laughs> what does this all mean? And I think before we get to the nuts and bolts of this show, we need to level set in a few of these acronyms. So as we said earlier, uh, this is a bit of an acronym soup. So let me go ahead and demystify some of these things. So DR simply put, involves a set of policies, tools, and procedures uh, to enable the recovery uh, of, of vital technology or infrastructure, potentially. So DR may often be associated with BCP, which is, stands for Business Continuity Planning, um, which is basically when a business has to enact some kind of a procedure uh, that potentially threatens the company's existence or, or operating model. Uh, and it's designed really to help you prevent uh, you know, go into a situation um, so that your business can continue, which which could actually mean that you go from IT to paper and pencils. So while we are talking about sort of IT here, um, this is about an organizational level preparedness uh, to be able to survive a situation. So BCP may involve how staff go to work or perhaps how they're dealing with uh, situations, what tools they use, uh, and perhaps also is, is a part of, you know, when do you actually invoke disaster recovery procedures? Yeah, exactly. I kind of laugh inside here. You know, when to invoke a DR strategy is often a big decision in a lot of organizations. When an unplanned outage occurs and a BCP strategy can take a lot of the guesswork out of this. I like to think of BCP as a formal DR strategy. It takes the guesswork out and can often aid in when measuring SLAs and uptime. So RTOs and RPOs are often terms thrown about in this arena. So RPO or recovery point objective and recovery time objective RTO are two of the most important parameters of disaster recovery planning. And really, as a field essay, it helps me understand how we need to architect a solution. Let me explain what I mean by this. The recovery point objective, RPO, describes the interval of time that may pass during a disruption before the quantity of data loss during that period exceeds the business continuity plant's maximum allowable threshold or tolerance. So for example, if the last available good copy of data upon an outage is from say 18 hours ago and the RPO, so the amount of data that can be lost is 20 hours worth, well then you know we're still within the parameter of the business continuity plan's recovery point objective. So in another word, it answers the question, to what point in time could the recovery process tolerably deal with data loss? I like to, you know, simply put it, how much data can we afford to lose? Now, recovery time objective, on the other hand, is a duration of time a service must be restored within by. In another words, the RTO is the answer to the question, you know, how much time did it take to recover after we declared a disaster? Back to being an essay in the field, often when architecting a solution, there may often be times, you know, when people are trying to architect a sledgehammer of a solution, when the RTO, RPO can sustain either, you know, generous data loss or generous amounts of downtime. So the other two acronyms I want to skim over and you may hear is MTBF. So probably used mainly in measuring hardware. 
such as hard drives. And MTBF stands for mean time between failure. And it's a measurement of how reliable a product is. For most components, this is typically measured in thousands or even tens of thousands of hours between failure. Um, so like a hard drive might have an MTBF of 300,000 hours. And then MTTR or mean time to repair, which is measures the maintainability or repair time of items. It represents the average time required to repair a failed systems. So level setting done, I want to have a few conversations here on a variety of topics. And, you know, these acronyms, you know, help generally help customers define the most appropriate path forward when, def- when you know, deciding on DR, BCP and architecting. So DR is often thought in many organizations, you know, as an insurance policy. How do you define, Pete, if we need DR to begin with? And look, that's often a very important decision to go through, and it's not to be taken lightly. So it really comes down to impact versus the likelihood of the risk, right? If there's a huge business impact, perhaps millions of dollars uh, you know, per hour is lost by the business during um, a service disruption, uh, this is a perfect candidate for DR, right? So assuming that the cost to run and operate the DR environment is significantly less than the cost to, um, cost to the business of its data loss, loss of brand, loss of reputation uh, during a, you know, an outage, uh, this is a pretty good driver to make sure that you know, those workloads are candidates for DR. Yeah, I'm glad you actually mentioned that. You know, reputation loss. A lot of this stuff may not be tangible that you can easily mention, but absolutely. Yeah, and look, you know, and tangible assets are really, really important, right? When you think about, you know, impact to brand, impact to reputation, impact to customer goodwill, the likelihood of increasing, um, you know, customer churn, all of those aspects, uh, once you start to measure them, you start to uh, have a much better business case for actually building out a DR infrastructure because you can hopefully start to quantify the impacts of some of these things. Yeah, you know, if you're in a race uh, between another organization and you're offline for half a day, you know, people may just use that other organization and may not come back. And look, you're not going to be able to measure that yeah, quite easily there and then. And there are companies that actually, you know, can bring in, you know, large percentages, like, you know, in some cases up to 80% of the revenue uh, in one day of the year, right, on special events or special, you know, um, business models where, you know, there's a lot of burst for very short durations, but it brings in a huge amount of revenue. So you don't want to have a bad day on that day. Yeah, many gambling organizations in Australia, to say the least. So look, how do you easily figure this out? So many organizations struggle with this and using a matrix I find is often a good idea here. So with the virtual whiteboard wheeled out, let's imagine on one axis, let's say Y, we have business impact and we'll have likelihood on the X axis. It could be as simple as assigning an integer value to low, medium and high, and then adding up the cell values. Any value greater than say N that you define requires DR. Simply, you know, this takes the guesswork out. You need to ensure that this value is half of your maximum as, you know, whilst the likelihood of losing any key system could be really low, the impact could be off the charts. And, you know, you may just want something that has a high impact in one dimension requiring DR. And I guess, Pete, after you've decided you need a DR solution, what options do we have in AWS? All right, so you decided that you do need a DR, great. So the first stop I would suggest would be to sit and read through the DR white paper, as well as read through the AWS well-architected framework. Now the DR white paper uh, includes references to um, and we'll have a reference to this in, in, in the show notes, uh, but it actually talks about implementing a number of different models of DR solutions on top of AWS. And conversely, the well-architected white paper, uh, which I highly encourage you guys read, um, has been designed to actually help customers to build secure, you know, highly performant, resilient, uh, you know, and efficient infrastructure, um, you know, that is also cost effective for your application. So it's really important that, you know, you look at 
many of these five pillars um, that actually help you to come up with an architecture that actually actually makes sense. And you, you may actually notice that as you work through the well-architected framework, perhaps either yourself, because you can do it yourself in the AWS console or with your uh, favorite solution architect, um, you can actually start, start to sort of have uh, things around, you know, do I uh, cost optimize and auto scale versus run static infrastructure for those things that I cannot afford uh, to have any uh, disruptions? Yeah, and it's a reliability pillar, Pete, that I want to hone in on today. And I guess, Pete, as they say, prevention is better than cure. And being well-architected as the prevention and DR strategy being the cure. Perhaps another way to look at it in light of current world affairs, it's kind of like incident versus problem management. You know, if you're managing the incident, well, then you need DR. But if it's a problem management, you know, how do we provide, you know, continual high availability, then, you know, that is the prevention here. Let's get into these DR options here, Pete. And I want to preface each option here as it, they all have pros and cons. And generally, the more confidence one has in a solution, providing a shorter RPO and RTO, the more expensive the solution will be to run and operate. Now, I say generally, as approaches to solve these problems are always changing. We should always be making database decisions. You know, understand what your actual business requirements are. Understand the capabilities of your tools. That is the process and limitations of each of them and choose accordingly. You know, if you have generous RTO and RPOs, pick the most appropriate DR methodology. And conversely, you know, if they're really tight, pick the most appropriate one. So one of the approaches that is gaining lots of traction in terms of um, how to set your infrastructure up is actually called the pilot light model. And the idea of the pilot light is really an analogy that comes from gas heating. Uh, and in this scenario, you know, there's a small flame that's always on um, that can quickly ignite the entire furnace to heat up your house, right? To make sure you've got enough hot water in the building. So in this DR approach, you simply replicate parts of your IT infrastructure um, for a limited set of core services that you can quickly scale up in terms of uh, when they're needed, in terms of generally during a disaster event. So a small part of infrastructure is always running, simultaneously syncing all of your mutable data, so your databases, your documents, and so on and so forth, while other parts of your infrastructure are switched off and used only during testing potentially or DR testing. So unlike backup and recovery approaches, you really need to ensure that um, your most critical core components are already configured and running in this pilot light model. So when a time comes for enacting a, a disaster recovery scenario, you can rapidly provision and scale up to full-scale production uh, your entire environment uh, around those core critical systems. Yeah, and look, there are various approaches and sizes of pilot lights here. When I discuss this with customers, I like to hone in on what's most critical. You know, it's typically the statement of records such as databases. When I talk about sizes of pilot lights here, some may just replicate databases and instantiate the stack via DSL, such as CloudFormation, in the event of a declared disaster. Now, this is a really good approach. It can provide a low RTO and RPO in a cost-effective way. But also requires a certain amount of maturity, Shane. If you have hand cranked out your EC2 instances, um, you know manually, this process may not necessarily be best for you. It does require that your stacks perhaps are programmatically deployed uh, in order to meet your RTOs. And building environments with consistency won't scale uh, if you have human beings involved. Because uh, during those moments, people freak out, they have, they have, they, um, they're under pressure and stress. Uh, and I've seen lots of organizations go through this, including one that I've worked for, where uh, when you do enact these things, uh, you want to be having a automated runbook process with very little human being involvement as possible. So a good approach here is to use common things like cloud formation, uh, per parameterize your environments, 
um, using lookup tables or service discoveries in your environment so that your deployed instances understand what environments they are actually being part of, either production, DR, or in some cases also, you know, dev test, if you are uh, applying good practices across all those different uh, facets. Yeah, and look, my recommendation here is not to have, you know, a separate static CloudFormation for DR. You need to have confidence that this will work when you need it. And I really like the parameterized or service discovery approach because you're using this CloudFormation day in, day out for your production environment, and you're going to have confidence. Indeed. And uh, look, another approach one could take that will advance you towards uh, shorter RTOs and RPOs is what we call a warm standby. Um, and as, said, as uh, Shane just said, these benefits come in the form of you know, higher running costs, however. right? So a warm standby, what is that? So as used to describe a DR scenario in which uh, you uh, have a scaled down version of your fully functional environment that is always running. So this extends the pilot light analogy further because, um, you know, you are actually running your systems of record, your databases, uh, you know, the full gamut of services, but they are actually running in a much more scaled down uh, scale. Yeah. And look, auto scaling groups and containers work really well here. And this approach works well in environments that can horizontally scale. So with containers, you know, you might alter the number of running tasks and with auto scaling groups, change the desired maximum capacity. If you don't horizontally scale, you may be able to run smaller scale-down instances. You may run M5s in production, but perhaps T3s in DR when inactive. Obviously, you're going to need a method to scale up, and hopefully you've got this done programmatically. Because the entire load is running through this environment, you may be able to leverage approaches such as Route 53 to send a portion of your traffic to this environment, you know, to give you that peace of mind that it is actually working. You know, perhaps maybe you know two to five percent of your traffic. I kind of feel like this is a good middle ground. It's giving you that confidence that your environment's going to work when needed because you're actually sending live traffic through, but it's also done in a cost-effective way. On the other end of the spectrum, what was probably the first DR strategy out there is plain and simple backup. Pete, you probably have a little bit more life experience than myself. Is there anything prior? Were they using punch cards back in your day? <laughs> I can't say I'm that old, but uh, I certainly have played with punch cards. So that, that does show you how, perhaps how old I really am. And I did have my birthday just on the, on the uh, in this month. So uh, yes, uh, plus one on the, on the age. You've really played with punch cards? Uh, yes, I have. Scary, huh? Wow. Just to tell me about it. <laughs> but look, listen, uh, back to the show. So failure can, um, you know, occur not only on the infrastructure side, but also quite commonly on the data corruption side too. You know, human errors, viruses, ransomware, you know, uh, all have a part to play in uh, having a need for backups, right? So uh, backup and restore is really simple and low, co and low cost fundamentally is a DR approach uh, because you can back up your data and also your applications. Uh, and fundamentally, you can back up from anywhere to the AWS cloud um, so that you can actually restore some of these things when you have a disaster scenario where you have to actually enact. So um, the methods have changed over the years, Shane, and uh, those LTO tape libraries that you may have played with yourself uh, with uh, more modern you know, methods and technologies. Um, but basically, most of all, uh, all of those uh, enterprise backup applications and integrations these days uh, generally integrate quite nicely with Amazon S3 and things like Glacier as well. And uh, you know, when you look at the cost of that, storage costs are really as low as 0.003 of a cent per gigabyte, for example, for Glacier. Yeah, and look, perhaps your backup application is really old. And as Pete said, you know, basically everything these days has integration with S3 and Glacier. But maybe, look, you're stuck on a really old version and all you can do is deal with an LTO tape library. You can look at deploying Storage Gateway, you know, to present a VTL or virtual tape library to your application. Now, 
I look at backups, Pete, as an insurance policy. They are that cheap that you should be taking them to protect your statement mm. of records and those systems, you know, that cannot be recreated by source control. But this is often the last resort. Um, you know, if you're having to restore a backup of your database, it's either because you've had a catastrophic hardware failure, um, you weren't running a multi-node scenario, which most engines provide, or someone did something less than ideal, like drop an important table. And that's um, never happened to anyone, right? Said no one ever. <laughs> Backups protect against the human factor, but if you need to use them, expect a long RTO, recovery time objective, measured in hours or even days if they're required to be used. And look, and just on that, right, so we're talking about dropping tables. Uh, so, you know, I've seen approaches in the past of database being replicated at the database level by transaction logs or logs mm -hmm. being consumed, but having a time delay before they're absorbed on the destination system, e.g., you know, we might be doing synchronous mirroring to a node here, but we're going to be doing asynchronous consumption of logs that's going to be three hours behind. So if, you know, Pete's having a bad day with his DBA skills right, and, and I fetch finger and I press the wrong button, that's right. That's I it. I have not dropped all the entire environment. Drops all tables. Well, that's going to be replicated synchronously to the mirrors and the other ones like that, but it's not going to be absorbed for X number of hours on the DR target. So, you know, there are approaches you can take here. We're not going to discuss them all today, but you know, be creative. But let's keep let's keep let's keep on going though. So moving to the other end of the spectrum here, Shane. Rather than having RTOs being hours to days, or you know, a you know, uh, being replicated, how about having zero RTO? Wouldn't that be nice? And sounds ideal. That'd be great. Great. So there is this is the option, right? So a multi-region application, right, is 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 well worth considering, right? You can have your apps. Um, you know, your solution running across multiple AWS regions in an active, active topology. Uh, in essence, there is no DR, right? So uh, net, if you read the uh, Netflix engineering blog, you often will, you may have come across that. That's how they do it. If there's a service disruption in one AWS re region for whatever reason, um, they just go straight to the other ones, right? So uh, well worth uh, having a read of those. But fundamentally, um, the issues uh, affecting a region are very, very rare, uh, but they, they have happened in the past. And... Um, as Werner always says, things fail all the time. So it's well worth having a conversation with your favorite solutions architect and also amongst your team to figure out, you know, how can you avoid being totally offline? Uh, so definitely worth exploring these options. Now, the caveats in doing this, i.e. being multi-region, uh, it's not as simple as it sounds, right? There's a lot of questions that you have to ask yourself. For example, is your stack one that is horizontally scalable? right? Can you keep on scaling? Is it stateless? Because certainly being stateless is very, very beneficial uh, and simpler to uh, recreate your infrastructure because data obviously has gravity. Uh, are there any regulatory issues uh, in the country that you're operating in, which actually, you know, uh, makes it difficult to take your bits of data outside of the region that your data is residing in? Also, you know, do you keep your uh, systems of record in sync with each other? How do you do it? As per your comments earlier, Shane. Yeah, and look, just on that, you know, do you run multi-master or leverage a means to fail between database nodes? Databases here are often a bit of a challenge, and my advice would be to look at what the database engine offers in terms of native replications, as well as our product offerings. You know, you've got DynamoDB global tables can be a great option, or perhaps using even PubSub messages to drop a message in a remote queue to update the source system. The point I think we're trying to convey here is this approach, whilst sounding amazing, can be complicated and will require, in almost all cases, you know, some custom code and engineering effort. 
Indeed, but look, it has its benefits. Other than providing a zero or near zero RTO, uh, it can actually be performed at no additional cost, right? Because being able to run in this mode means that you aren't having resources sitting idle. So there's no pilot light or warm or pre-warming. Uh, it's actually being used. So multiple regions um, that are running are able to actually flex and grow based upon capacity and perhaps your needs. So if you have CloudFront set up, a CDN, you, you perhaps want to uh, you know, uh, move your bits or access the closest region uh, you could certainly do it in that mode as well. So it's quite useful. So it can provide it, you know, uses a lot of benefits and a greater user experience because uh, you are perhaps moving closer to the actual origin uh, of where your bits are residing uh, instead, of instead of having to travel halfway across the world. Uh, but... Um, you know, this is a bit of a big architecture, right? So um, it does mean that you actually simply sit down, think through many of the different scenarios and operating modes, um, as we discussed just earlier. Uh, and there are also many offerings that can help you architect these solutions, such as, you know, DynamoDB, Aurora, Route 53, and a whole raft of other services, right? So again, it comes back to understanding the tools that you have at your disposal um, and the ability to actually use uh, you know, a multi-region deployment. So really need to think about your architecture, Shane, and really think about the business value. Yeah, and look, not to call out Netflix again specifically, but it may not be economical. I don't know how many or how much resources Netflix consumes. I hear it's a lot, but is it actually feasible to have this replicated into another AWS region? And I'm thinking the answer probably is not so you know multi-region can make sense particularly when you're at hyperscale so if you know for all those out there with the size of netflix maybe think about this all right so look i want to pivot away from recovery and more to preventing issues in the first place so a key differentiator of aws is our regions and how they differ from other providers they're made up of availability zones and it's these availability zones that can help you architect you know really robust available solutions pete I'm sure you've probably spoken about availability zones more than anyone I know in the early days of AWS. But should a newly joined listener have joined, how about giving us a quick high-level overview here? Well, you know, somebody actually asked me how many times may, have, may, may I have spoken about this. And um, I've seen at least 2,500 different architectures at my time at AWS. So uh, I suspect even if it's 50% of that, it's a lot. So look, let me, let me give, you a, give it a bash. So uh, you know, an AWS region, you know, like like a Sydney region or any other region in the world, uh, employs multiple availability zones, right? So these are fault isolated constructs uh, that are so a region generally has at least two or more AZs, as we call them, and these are these are designed to be completely independent of each other. So an AZ is separated by a large physical distance from the other zone to avoid any sort of uh, you know um, failure scenarios resulting from things like environmental hazards, fire like in Australia, or floods, or, you know, things like tornadoes. Um, and each AZ has an independent physical infrastructure, and it's dedicated, it has connections to utility, power supplies, standalone, you know, backup power sources, independent mechanical services, and lots of independent network connectivity, which is highly redundant, uh, which is actually wired up between these availability zones. So despite being geographically displaced, so far away from each other, AZs um, are generally located within that region. Uh, and the idea is that we don't want to make we don't want to have these too far away from each other. So it's always a balancing act to make sure that we are roughly within a single digit millisecond latency, which happens to be the magic number 
for replication. So this enables things like synchronous data replications between databases uh, without any sort of undue impacts on the application latency. Uh, this also allows customers to use these AZs in an active, active manner, or perhaps an active standby configuration, depending how you've architected your architecture. Uh, but these AZs are, are independent of each other, and therefore application availability can actually increase when you are designing and scaling your application architecture just across multiple availability zones, which is awesome. And also because AWS services like EC2 are deployed in a strictly zonal space, uh, they really share very little amongst each other, right? So uh, these uh, services that we employ inside a region uh, are generally independent of each other. So things like instances, databases, and other infrastructure. And what this also means is that we have a high level of resilience uh, within a region, especially when there is very little to share nothing uh, scenarios for our services. Yeah, I like that. And just towards the end, share nothing. And I think a lot of software architectures are moving towards that share nothing architecture. Gone are the days of requiring you know shared block level storage. We're gonna keep things separate. And you can see that also in software side of things now, you know, we're talking about deploying microservices rather than monoliths, those completely independent pieces that can be decoupled and not rely, you know, not reliant on other microservices out there. And it's super, imp- it's, look, it's super important because when you think about when you took an EBS, so Elastic Block Storage Snapshot, right, it goes into S3, but to hydrate it, we actually hydrate that into the EBS service within the availability zone that you're actually sitting in. So if you want to hydrate that, you know, EBS snapshot, to a different AZ, you certainly can. So it's great because S3 is also replicated across multiple AZs with 11 nodes of durability. You know, we have amazing number of uh, engineering, you know, approaches to solving many of these problems. Okay, so level set done, multi-AZ infrastructure can be heavily utilized here. And as we mentioned earlier, taking a look at AWS Well Architected and in particular the reliability pillar will provide you a lot of advice and wisdom on how to architect your solution to avoid outages in the first place. So just this document, you know, it's going to talk to fault isolation zones, e.g. availability zones, building redundant components, microservice architecture, which is hugely popular and for good reason, as I just mentioned, and distributed systems best practice. Now, for many services at AWS, we leverage availability zones. You know, our services are going to be multi-AZ aware from load balancers through to database engines. Pretty much every service will have a multi-AZ offering. And if it's a serverless offering, it's going to be multi-AZ out of the box. And that's really where the AWS Vantage comes in. You know, as builders, AWS has been a bit of a game changer with multi-AZ. And I remember dealing with ELBs, you know, way back probably... 2010 and at the time thinking wow you know i've effectively got a load balancer that spans multiple locations and this can only work due to the low latency between these az's that pete described multi-az architectures as i mentioned are just another tool and if we go back to looking at you know the likelihood versus impact the likelihood of losing an entire aws region is going to be less than losing an aws availability zones and you may base your decision to architect accordingly around that and look, in the end, Shane, it comes back to your business needs and requirements, right? And architecting for multi-region, you know, uh, so that you can avoid failures of any kinds, right? Um, and in most cases, you'll find that as you do that, uh, it does actually complicate some uh, of your architectural decisions. Uh, so certainly start small, start with things like, uh, you know, are you in a single region? 
Uh, are you in a multi-region? Are you multi-AZ? And go through those conversations with your favorite solutions architect and uh, really, you know, perhaps even have a look at the well-architected framework and do your own um, self-guided, well-architected review because uh, we actually do guide you through many of these decisions that uh, I mentioned earlier should be considered. I'm just wondering here, Pete, can I be, you know, customer's favorite solution architect? <laughs> I thought every essay in the AWST was a, was the favorite of their customer because we're so customer obsessed. But you're my favorite architect, Shane. It makes you feel better. Everyone, if I'm your favorite, drop me a message. Okay. <laughs> yeah, call, so, call Shane's manager and let him know. <laughs> absolutely, please. What was the feedback? So, Pete, AWS Tech Chat at, uh, <laughs> at Amazon.com. Love it. So, Pete, I'm going to put you on the spot here as there's a bit of an unknown, undocumented gem of AWS I think our listeners may not be aware of. Tell us what you know, what I call mid one, max one. Well, there's actually possibly two of those, but the, the min, max one, uh, it's not really uh, that hidden, but it does start to make sense when you start to think about it, right? So the min, max one can be used in scenarios where you have ELBs and ALBs. Um, and for those those of you, it's, it's basically what you would set to your auto-scaling group to. So you set it to a target of one, right? So you want the current temperature, which is the number of instances you want running, which is current setting, minimum one, maximum one. And then what actually happens if that instance is to stop for whatever reason, as you guys probably know, uh, your auto-scaling with the ELBs will actually detect uh, a health failure. Uh, perhaps of your instance, and it will actually recreate that instance. So it's a great example. And uh, I think a lot of people who start with AWS, uh, when they first start up an auto scaling group, they generally just have one, 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 right? Um, so, you know, max, min, and current setting. And then they delete or terminate the instance and bingo, like a whack a mole, this thing keeps popping up. So, because you can actually set which availability zones uh, you should launch your EC2 instance in, it actually is quite a nice way to providing some resilience uh, into your infrastructure, right? So, uh, it's a kind of a nice little clever way to uh, leverage the health checks and have your, you know, your instance is actually replaced from a well known uh, Amazon machine image. Now, having said all that, there's actually another one that I like even more, Shane. Right, and that is the. And what would that be? That is the auto recovery feature that we launched some some years ago, which again, not everyone perhaps has come across. And what the uh, what this um, feature is all about is that you can create an Amazon CloudWatch alarm, and I'm a big fan of CloudWatch, that monitors your EC2 instance and automatically recovers the instance if it actually becomes impaired due to sort of any kind of you know underlying hardware failure or problem that requires you know us to. Um, repair it right so now if you terminate instances this does not work so you can't do it in that case so if that's if you're doing it however when you do um when we recover the instance it's actually identical to the original instance that actually had had failed so that's down to you know the same instance id private ip address even down to the elastic ip address and all of the actual instance metadata which is actually quite useful right so an impaired instance uh even if it's in a placement group will actually be recreated inside the placement group and the way we do that is we look for the uh, the status check failed system alarm when that gets triggered um, that action is initiated and you'll be notified through an Amazon uh, SNS topic that you select when you actually create the alarm so that you know it's actually being recovered. Uh, and uh, once the instance is being recovered, uh, the instance may also be migrated to a new um, host, an underlying infrastructure. Right? It'll actually reboot uh, and be aware that obviously what's in memory will be lost because it's actually a reboot of your instance. Uh, and when the process is complete, uh, the information is also published to the SNS topic to let you know uh, that the alarm's been done. Uh, and also, 
Uh, it's also well worth noting that if you actually subscribe to the SNS topic, you may even receive an email. So be aware that's very, very handy. Uh, it comes back uh, in the same availability zone. So we will not move it to a different AZ as might be the case with the min one, max one example we just spoke about. Uh, but it's actually very cool. So things like, you know, loss of network connectivity, loss of system power, any software issues on the physical host running your instance, you know, any hardware on the physical host also that perhaps may have been impacted. Um, and also, if, you, if your instance had an IPv4 address, it keeps retaining it, Shane. So it's another little little gem in the uh, DR toolbox. Uh, but also, little caveat, be aware that when the machine has been rebooted, make sure or hopefully all of your uh, software that you run, any services or demons, uh, actually are restarted as well. So be aware of that little caveat because it is actually a reboot, but it looks and smells and appears just like the previous instance because it has the same instance ID. Fantastic. That sounds really good. Actually, something I've never played with before because I like to think of these as, you know, ultimately they're here, but they're also kind of Band-Aid architectures. You know, we're trying to, you're trying to deal with the fact that systems may not be horizontally scalable. So for those systems that are, you know, vertically challenged, you know, can only scale vertically, <laughs> probably like myself. Um, yeah, these are really good approaches. Are you saying you're vertically challenged, Shane? I'll put my hand up here, Pete. <laughs> Good things come in small packages, as I say. Indeed. But as always, we are running out of time. We're at time, in fact. We are, Pete. We could go on. And look, there's really a lot more we could speak about. So listeners, if this has whet your appetite and there is more that you'd like to know, firstly, please see the show notes. You know, We'll put links in there to our DR blog and a DR white paper, which will talk through these options as well as the well-architected reliability pillar. And if there's anything else that you can't find, drop us a message at awstechchat at amazon.com and we'll do our best to reply. And, which, which, to close and it, we'll tell Chain's manager that, he's his, that you're his favorite. Someone, please do that. I'll send you some swag. <laughs> I'm sure they will now. Go for it, guys. Um, to close out the show today, let's summarize. In this themed episode of AWS Tech Chat, we explored how one deals with failure because as we say, everything fails all the time. We started level setting with some acronyms to ensure we're all on the same page. You know, we level set things like RTOs and RPOs. So hopefully this now means something to everyone. Indeed. And uh, look, uh, I spoke about uh, that DR is often thought in many organizations as an insurance policy, right? And I also spoke about the importance of figuring out the impact versus the risk and how you can put some structure around your decision making uh, around that. Uh, we also focused on the various approaches that you can uh, that you can use for DR, such as pilot light, where you, you know, you're ensuring that you replicate uh, your data, uh, but have a very small amount of infrastructure running in a remote location. Uh, we talked about warm standby, where we, you know, where you actually run your infrastructure, but you're running it in a much more scaled down version of it, uh, and also allows you to scale up really rapidly as you need it. So great candidates for things like containers, um, and also before uh, speaking about, you know traditional backups and restore approaches, we, we focused on you know, a couple of approaches to thinking around how Glacier and S3 can actually be used uh, and the options for things like you know, virtual tape libraries as part of the storage gateway. And Pete told us about a few nifty tricks. So we covered the mid one, max one, but he also told us about EC2 auto recovery. So we then pivoted to what it would take to architect for multi-region applications, allowing you to run your solution across multiple AWS regions in an active, active topology, speaking through the challenges you may face and what tools are available. Before closing out the show with multi-AZ architectures, which is a key differentiator of AWS from other providers. 
we refreshed you on what an availability zone is and talk through all the AWS services that are either multi-AZ by default or as a tick box offering, allowing you to build robust architectures that can withstand AZ failures. I think, Pete, we are done. I think we are. So guys, uh, as always, please give us feedback. Uh, the more feedback we get, uh, the better the shows can be custom made to what you need. Uh, and uh, Shane and I actually hand make these episodes, as you can guys appreciate. So uh, let us know what craftsmanship we should be focusing on. Please do. Okay, so listeners, you know what to do. As Pete said, keep the feedback coming. Send us a message, Chat at amazon.com as your messages do drive the direction of this show. We'll be back in a few weeks' time to cover some updates that occurred in the past month. But until next time, bye for now. And keep on building. Ciao. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com. <laughs>